This morning, however, I'd like to talk to you and preach on a subject or preach from a passage in Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 16 about the rich young ruler. Somebody said, why did you choose that passage? So I gave him a theological answer, I like it. I like that story. It's hard for me actually to come and preach a one-shot sermon because I'm used to getting into the Word and just going with it. And so uh, I have a son, Rick. I have a friend, Pastor Rick. And we're all three in the Book of Romans. Uh, Our son started in just not too long ago. Rick has been in it how many years? Five? (laughs) I've been in it four. And Rick and I are having a race together, Rick, Holland, and I, to see who's the slowest. <laughs> but we want, we, you know, when you get and you preach the Word, you want to get all of it. You just don't want to rush through it. And especially at my age, I know the end is there, either the rapture of the church or I'm going to meet him, uh, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, either way. And I know I don't have a lot of time left So when I get to the passages and I'm in this church, I feel like i got to take the doctrines that are there and trace them through to get them caught up to where we are in the book of Romans. So it's taken us a little while and it's becoming a joke. Uh, But I don't mind that at all because it is the Word of God and people need to know it. It's easy in this day to assume in a conservative uh, Bible church, Bible teaching church, that everybody who attends church is a believer. It's easy to assume, and it's also in a church like ours and like you have here at Mission Road, it's also easy to get very smug, and it's very easy to become complacent. The Lord has commanded and demanded our all, and he demands it now as a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting how he put this story together. And this story, by the way, appears in all three of the synoptics. appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's all really very close. There are a few little things that each author has added to it under the inspiration of the Scripture. But it gives us a full story. It's also the context is very interesting. It follows the story of Jesus dealing with the children and saying, You know, unless you come like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Speaking of the humility that it takes to repent of one's sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As he leaves, evidently, this particular session, he meets this man on the road. And we see here that he is a student. He is also a seeker. And so we find him running up to Jesus from the story. In Matthew 19, 16, we read, And behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Actually, in the Gospel of Mark, we find that he came running to Jesus. Furthermore, he knelt when he found Jesus. He came to Jesus and he knelt. He was giving great respect to Jesus Christ. He came to the right person at the right time to find the right answer. 
And so he had great respect for the Lord, having knelt to him. In other words, in a circle, this particular person uh, ran and, and had all kinds of information and input from people. People were not very excited about Jesus. In fact, uh, many of them were hoping that he would get out of the scene or they themselves should expedite the matter and take him out of the scene. The Bible also tells us in verse 20 of this passage that he was young, probably under the age of 40. We don't know how young that is. To me, at my age, anything under 40 is children. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he was a young person. Luke says he was extremely rich, and Mark confirms the fact that uh, he was also rich as well. So what we have here is a very rich young man coming, running to Jesus, and kneeling down. That had have been quite a sight. This guy's not a beggar. This guy's not blind. This guy's not lame. This guy's an outstanding-looking person. And he would be welcome in any church, especially if he had money. His re he had this great respect for the Lord. And we find that in he becomes a parent, he had a high opinion of him. Now, he's also a scholar. He wants to know. And he comes to the scholar and he calls him teacher in Matthew. In, Math in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and Luke 18, 18, he calls him good teacher. He addresses Jesus as teacher in Matthew and a good teacher in Mark and Luke. A good teacher is a, a formal address to a Jewish teacher who expects good things and also expects to get some answers from the teacher. So the usage in this passage of the word good is an important word in this passage, actually, and it, the Lord plays off of that particular word. I think we have to understand there are two kinds of goodness. There's a relative goodness, and, and we might call that, we might say to you, that's, he's a good person. And we might say, that's a bad person. And that's a relative thing because we're making our own judgment as to who's good and who's bad. And so we call that relative goodness. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, you have the same thing, only it's called righteousness there. You have uh, the righteousness of men, which is relative, and we might say he's more righteous than they are or they're less, whatever vocabulary you want to use in this case. And then we have another standard of goodness and righteousness, and that's God's standard. God's essence, the essence of God is holiness. He is absolutely good. He is absolutely right in all that he does. And all God's people said, yeah, he is. We agree with that. He's good in all he is. And so we have this low standard of goodness, and we have this high standard of goodness. And this poor young guy didn't know the difference, and he thought good was good, as a lot of people do. Isaiah 64, verse 6, we all know this passage. It says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us are wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So the Bible makes it clear that all the righteousness of men, relative righteousness, is unacceptable to God. He, he sees it 
as a filthy garment. The old King James says, filthy rags. It's not acceptable to God. We're all on the same page in that one. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 tells us, he said, Indeed, there's not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and sins not. That's God's impression of all of us here on planet Earth. In Romans 3.10, he quotes from the Psalms, and he says this, There is none righteous, not even one. So God has his standard. The rich man has his standard. And so he asks the question. He asks the question in the last part of verse 16 of Matthew 19. He says, What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, you've been in Mission Road long enough to know that that's, that, that is a works-based righteousness. This fellow believes that there's something he can do that would be accepted by God. And as I read this passage, it seems to me that it's something over and above just keeping the commandments. Is there some hospital I could build with my name on it? Is there some sports field that I could dedicate that my name would be on it? Is there something in the church that you could put my name on the stained glass windows or put it on the back of a pew or something of that nature? What good thing could I do as though he could do anything? First of all, uh, the, the Lord goes back before him and he says to him, uh, he, this, guy's in, this guy is very sincere. It indicates that he's not sure uh, that he's done everything he could do. There's an uneasiness in him. There is a restlessness in his spirit. D am, am I really good enough? And that is really the issue with a works-based righteousness. Have I really done enough? And you never know when you have done enough. So there is a lack of assurance. There is a restlessness. I ha have I done enough? He did not have peace in his heart. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 7, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. For the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to give us this assurance. There are times in our life, even as believers, we doubt, don't we? You lay at bed at night and the night watches and you say and you hear the fiery darts of the devil from Ephesians 6 and you wonder, is this worth it all? Is this really it? I've often thought that too myself. The doubts come. And where do you have to go? You have to go back to the Word of God and say, yes, this is it. This is it. This is true. You've got to have that peace. John 14, verse 27 talks about that as well. Just before Jesus left on, to go to heaven, he said, Peace I leave with you. My, I peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Well, this guy had some fear. I'm not sure that I did everything I could. Which brings up an interesting question. I think all of us have that periodically, don't we? 
We, we've had opportunities to minister and we've blown it. We've had opportunities to say something about Christ to someone and we just chickened out and we uh, backed off. Or we had an opportunity to serve in the body and, and we thought about it and uh, eh, it just takes too much time. And, you know, I have to work crossword puzzles and stuff. I just don't know I have the time for this. And, and it raises doubts, doesn't it? We all experience that to some extent. But this young man was desperate. And he's looking for peace in the soul in all the wrong places. He was trying to find that peace, but he looked at the wrong place. He looked at himself. He said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Eternal life means that quality of life after death for which the believer uh, wants at the presence and being in Christ's presence forever. The place with the golden streets and all these things and the meeting of all the loved ones before us. I think sometimes there's, uh, when I hear a lot of gospel songs, we're going to, especially a southern type, we're all going to have on the golden streets and all those kinds of things. We sometimes miss the point. Golden streets and reaching and seeing our deceased loved ones and being back with them, that's great. That's wonderful. But the real issue is we are going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ forever. And if you're just looking to have a life of ease with your feet in a nice little stream playing a harp, you've got the wrong impression of heaven. 1 John 3, verse 1, tells us, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure are looking and longing for the second coming of Jesus Christ, namely the rapture of the church, and our fact of being with him, either if we pass away before he comes, we're looking forward to be with Jesus, and if that's not the primary thought, we need to stop and take inventory of what we're thinking. I want to have grandchildren first. I want to see the church filled first. I want to graduate from seminary first. I want, to have, I want to have a church first. I want to have my business built first. I want to go to Nebraska and see Lincoln first. <laughs> that would be the worst of all. But my point is taken this, that if seeing Christ first and wanting other things first you got your eyes on the wrong thing. And you need to stop. And you need to take inventory. Christ has to be first. He must be. We must focus our attention on him. Looking unto him, the author and the finisher of our faith. That has to be our focus. Well, here's the solution. In Matthew 19, verses 17 and 19. 
He has to understand good. So Jesus says to him, why are you asking me about what is good? First of all, why did you call me good teacher? There's only one that's good. But why are you asking me about good? Mark 10 says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. Are you, have you seen it in me at all? Are you coming to me and realizing who I am? I am the perfect standard of God on this earth. I am the living word of God. I don't think the guy saw that, do you? Uh, no comprehendo there. They didn't see that. There's no one good except God. And he's standing right in front of you in the person on the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, before Jesus gives him the assignment on what he can do to obtain eternal life, Jesus calls attention to himself. He wants this man to search his own heart and take a look at who's there. I love the story of the thief on the cross. One minute he's, you know, and I, have, I keep going back to Romans. Romans, 9, Romans 10 says, the word of God is nigh, it's in our mouth, right? Here's a guy cursing Jesus Christ, then suddenly with swollen lips, dry lips, sweating, looks over there and suddenly he sees it. This is the son of God. This is the good one who's dying for us. He didn't commit any sin. And he looks at him and he says, remember me. Remember me. He saw who the person was. All his life, he was probably a thief and a crook. Ended up as one of the mafia. Now he's on a cross and he suddenly turns over and he sees who the person is on the middle cross. This rich young ruler didn't get it. He didn't see it. There's only one who's good. Take a look at John chapter 16, verse 8. John chapter 16, verse 8, where we talk about the convincing ministry of the Holy Spirit, the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he convicts us basically of three things. In John 16, 8, he says, when, and, when he, and he, when he comes, will convict the world of right, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe on me, concerning righteousness because I go to my Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. In this case, the Holy Spirit is convicting him of righteousness. This is the only time righteousness appears in the book of John. Righteousness is what God is right in God's terms. Jesus is called holy and righteous in Acts 3.14. The fact that Jesus is going to the Father is ultimate proof that he is righteous. He satisfied all the demands of God's holiness and righteousness. This is the perfect, righteous Son of God. God approves of him. 
Jesus Christ is the natural standard or the ultimate standard of righteousness in the world. And that ought to convict us. Ought to convict us. More than a good teacher. And he says, okay, if uh, you understand righteousness, if you understand good, I'll tell you what you do. Here's the potential of goodness. If you enter, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Wow. Now, I would have thought he'd have said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Wouldn't Wouldn't you? Somebody came up to you and said, what do, I, what do I have to do to be saved? What would you say? Call Rick. <laughs> Call Adam. Call an elder. You know, we ought to know the plan of salvation so clearly and so well that we don't need a formula. Oh, what did I learn in soul winning class? We just need to know the Lord so well and his plan of salvation so well that if somebody ever asks us, we can add a moment's notice to him. Right? Can you? That's a good question. Can you do that? We'd say, I'm sweating it a little bit here. Real, I realize that Satan is a very uh, powerful and strong enemy and he can make us stammer at times. In these cases, but we should know it so well that we can share it immediately with you, with the person that asks. Now, if you wish to live, enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, hypothetically, that's true. Go back to the Old Testament and chapter 18 of Leviticus and verse 5. That's back there where your pages stick together. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. What does it say there? It says this. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which if a man may live, if he does them, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I don't know. He doesn't just say that there. He says it in Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 11. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11, he says basically the same thing. I give them my statutes and inform them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. Wow. Then he verifies that in the New Testament. Take a look at Romans chapter 10, verse 5. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes, says Paul, that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Okay, you want to gain eternal life? Keep the commandments, Jesus says to him. Now, the man answers, which one? He already flunked the test just by his question. He flunked. But Jesus has patience, and he says to him, you shall not commit a murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Which one, he says. The young man had, was from a Jewish uh, family, and he was a ruler. Many people think he was a ruler in a synagogue. So he would know this. He would have memorized this. He'd known the Ten Commandments more than you do. Can you pronounce, can you give us all the Ten Commandments in order correctly? Oh, you know, a few of them. He knew them all. Plus, he knew other things. Now, that word law is kind of interesting in the Bible. Theologians and many scholars have divided the law into the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the civil law, which has to do with how you uh, live your life, and then there is the ceremonial law. Now, the Bible doesn't really divide that up. It means the whole kit and caboodle, the whole law, all of it. The young man had read, memorized all this. Jesus had given him a sample from the second table of the law, the part of the law that talks about man's relationship one to another. And Jesus began with the second table, I believe, to, to allow him to realize on his own human level his inadequacy in relationship with his fellow man. You want to know you kept the law? What's your relationship to everybody? Well, we all know he flunked that one too because we all have people that cause the back of the nair on the back of our head to rise when we hear their name or they come into our presence and our immediate reaction is, I want to avoid them. I'm going to sit on this side and they can sit on that side and if they come on my side, I'm going over here. <coughs> that doesn't happen at Mission Road. But it happens everywhere else probably. You have people you just don't like and and then we say we love them in the Lord which means you hate them <laughs> true so you break the law right there you love your neighbor as yourself and here's an mark adds do not defraud which is probably abbreviation of the tenth one you shouldn't covet the keeping of the law had to be perfect. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. James 2.10. There's a killer. For whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles in one point he has become guilty of all. I doubt there's any one of us here who would want to raise, I'm not going to raise my hand, who would want to raise his hand and say, I've kept the law. Got to keep it all. The law has no power within it to keep it. That's interesting, isn't it? God gave them a law and he wrote it down. And Moses didn't even get down the hill before he threw it in disgust because of what was going on. Had to have it rewritten again. Years ago, when we had minute spots here in uh, Kansas City, uh, it was a time when the judge in Alabama was told to take down the Ten Commandments were on his wall or wherever they were posted. So I did a little minute spot on the fact that 
The Ten Commandments don't save anyone. In fact, the only nation God ever gave the Ten Commandments that killed the only one who ever kept them. And I got a phone call from some Jewish fella, and he was angry because I called them Christ killers. I said, I, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't say Christ killers. Well, you're accusing us of that. And I said, well, who did kill them? We, we as Gentiles had a hand in that too. We all did. Well, I'm telling my rabbi, and we're getting you off the air. And I said, well, hey, listen, I love the Jew. And he hung on long enough for me to go from Genesis to Revelation in about five, ten minutes explaining the position of Israel in the New Testament and Old Testament and how God loved them and how they turned from them and they turned from them. And also to tell him, look, sir, nobody's teched the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments within them, the whole law within them, had a sacrificial system. The law was given to show us how bad we were. Romans chapter 3, 19 and 20 says, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because the works of the law, no or by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. They looked at the Ten Commandments and they said, I can never keep this. No way. I'm guilty. So I take my lamb, my pet lamb, the lamb that was an important part of our flock, a male lamb or a goat. For this was a stock of my breeding stock, and I would take that lamb and I'd lay him on the altar, and the priest would slit his throat. And while that animal was bleeding, I'd say, Lord, should have been me. Should have been me. The law also showed the power of sin, right? Somebody puts a sign up and it says, wet paint, don't touch. What does that do in you? That's what it does. Forms rebellion in it. Somebody says, don't do this, and you want to say right away, they're not telling me what to do. The law riles up our flesh. Still does, doesn't it? We have to fight that constant flesh. We have to fight that sin remnant within us constantly. The law stirs that up within us. But within the law was a offering. The true believer in the Old Testament, even now, would realize you can't keep the law. He's unrighteous. He's condemned. He's being judged, and somebody has to pay the price. That's why John said in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb was a picture of the Lamb who would come. The rich young ruler, like his nation, stumbled 
at the stumbling stone who is Christ. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 21, 22. For indeed the Jews ask for a sign, the Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Isn't it great that God called us? Otherwise we wouldn't have come. Isn't it wonderful about the grace of God that he called us out of the sin cesspool and we were happy therein, rejecting Christ. Then the, the self-satisfaction of the rich young ruler comes into play. The young man said to him in verse 20, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Mark and Luke say, I kept from my youth up. It's like Paul. Paul said that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, he says, which is in the law found blameless. If you were to ask Paul prior to his conversion on the Damascus Road, he would have said, hey, I've kept the law. I'm one of the big ones. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Hebrew of the Hebrews. I, I have gone through all the things. The young man expresses some disappointment in the words of Christ. After all, he was a son of the law. He kept the law, and he was asking what extraordinary thing was there to do above the law? What could I do that would really put me over the edge? The law's true application would have said, you're bankrupt. You're morally bank bankrupt, and you should cry to God for his mercy. The young man displays a self-righteousness and a spiritual smugness. That can happen to us, too, in the age of grace, in the church age. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. I'm a seminary student. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I go to Mission Road. I go to Countryside. <clears throat> poor, poor people down there. You know, the law does something that makes us all equal, doesn't it? When you look at the law, we're all equal. We all flunked. The Grand Canyon, they say, is about, at its widest point, is 18 miles across. We could stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and we could say, we're, we're going to jump over it. Now, some of you could jump, probably, to the world's record. If you're like me, you can take a step. I'm built for comfort, not for speed. <laughs> so... You can do what you want to do, but you can run with all your might and get all the speed you can and take off at the edge, and you'll end up at the bottom, dead. I can step off the edge, and I end up at the very same place you do. We're all equal before the law. That's the whole point of the law. There's none of us that have earned, deserved salvation 
And the mercy that God shows us after we're saved is unbelievable to me. I look back over my life and I think, how is it, God, that I'm even here? How is it that I could even preach your word? How is it in light of what I am? And what I've fought and what I've done. And it brings me to the mercy seat of God and I thank him over and over again for an eternal salvation and for the forgiveness that I've had prior to my salvation, during my Christian life, and for tomorrow. And I confess and I say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Thank you for your wonderful, gracious forgiveness. Thank you. I'm not worthy. We need, how often can pride slip in? How often can it come into our heart? Even in our prayers, right? And you know, in the context of Luke, actually, before the story of the children is that prayer between the publican and the Pharisee. You remember that prayer, don't you? I thank God that I'm not like other people. I thank God that I have these wonderful things. Self-righteousness, I think, in our lives can be measured by our awareness of our own sin in our own life and how often we confess our sin. When's the last time you really went to the Lord and said, boy, I blew it? You know, it sort of builds up and we look at others and we say, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not like them. <laughs> boy, they blew it. I've had occasion over the years, and I'm preaching through uh, uh, on Wednesday nights through Genesis, and we're going through the story of the patriarchs. And people come to me and they say, how, how could they be that way? How, how could Abraham lie about Sarah? Uh, how, could, how could Jacob do what he did? How could, how could Isaac, when he knew that God had given the promise that the elder would serve the younger. How could he pull that fast one on, on God? How could he even think it? And how could the brothers of, Joseph, or brothers of Joseph be what they were? How could Moses smite the rock? How could Samson do what he did? How could David do what he did? My answer is they're just like us. Isn't it amazing to you how fast you can switch the switch off or on? A friend of mine was driving his car. Of course, this wouldn't happen in Kansas City. And uh, he was listening to the radio and singing a gospel song. Some lady cut him off, or man. I'll be gender neutral here. <laughs> cut him off. And he says, the next thing I know, I was cursing her. That switch just goes bang, bang. So God now, Christ now, gives him the stipulation. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, and you do, 
Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in your heaven be, and come and follow me. <clears throat> Mark adds a dimension to that response. Jesus said to the young man, what do I yet lack? He said, looking at, G at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, and this must have been a penetrating look. Jesus looked right into his eyes, eyeball to eyeball, and said, follow me and sell all you have. That had to be a penetrating look. It was the same look that Peter saw after he denied the Lord three times and went out and wept bitterly. And you know, I think it's the same penetrating look that all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ are going to see. Don't you? He's going to look right at us someday, all of you, me, you, all of us. We're going to stand right before him. He's going to not look to us in hatred or love, but we're going to see those eyes penetrate clear before us. A penetrating look. You probably had one or two of those in your life, and you just felt like you wanted to melt into some crack in the floor. Thank God it will not be in judgment. It will be in love. And we'll say, yes, Lord. Furthermore, Jesus loved the fellow. For God so loved the world. Gave his only begotten son. He loves the world. There's a love out there. This love is regardless of worthiness or unworthiness. This is a love that desires his highest welfare. And it's almost like he's saying, can't you get it? Can't you see it? We all have relatives or friends or children or whomever, mates, and we want them to be saved so bad and we say to ourselves, can't you see it? And they say, no comprehendo. They don't see it. They don't get it. Breaks your heart. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you've heard all this stuff before. I have people say to me, well, I've heard all that stuff before. Well, that's your problem. You call it stuff. This is the way to eternal life, man. Can't you see it? Follow me. How radical is this? What is lacking in this young, rich, young ruler is a single-hearted devotion to God. He must tear himself apart from his earthly possession and his self-righteous achievements so that God can fill all in all. Now, God doesn't ask every believer to sell everything he has and follow Jesus but he does ask us that he be first. And he demands that everything we have is his. <clears throat> My brother-in-law, uh, Dan, Faith's brother, is, was preaching in Durban, South Africa. 
And he preached there several years. Now, Durban is a city where a high crime rate. If you don't get robbed, you feel neglected. If there hadn't been an opportunity to hijack your car, you too feel a little bit funny when other people have, have had that experience. So one night on a bad evening and stuff was going on, my brother-in-law, fellow missionary, sat in his living room with a shotgun. Anybody coming through that door is going to meet some pellets. And so he felt there pretty smug. Then he realized, why am I guarding this stuff? It's not mine. It's the Lord's. So what if they take all of it? The same God who gave me this stuff will give me more stuff. There's an old gospel song that goes like this. This world's not my home. I'm just what? Passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Where is your treasure? Where is my treasure? Am I willing just to say, Lord, here it is? Ah, uh, but hey, I, uh, you know, Jesus said in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So who is your master? Who's the other master? And I can tell you this, if we have another master, that master takes trump over God. The Lord always takes second place. And you think, we think here in Overland Park and the surrounding area, Missouri and Kansas City, and the whole area here, there's so much to do. It is a big temptation to put Jesus and church as a sidetrack. Something is necessary, but other things come first. Now, I live in a country you'd think that's not the case. It's the same case there. Same case. It's a sickness, a sin, sickness that affects all of us, and it's very difficult for us to put God first above our family, above everything else. That's radical. Luke 9, 61, verse 62, another said, I'll follow you, Lord, uh, Lord, but, 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 but first, allow me, permit me to say goodbye to all those folks at home. And Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. One day, uh, my folks-in-law, who were also in the ministry, they may have had an opportunity to take a church in Hawaii. I've never had that opportunity. <laughs> I, I always wanted to be on a coast by an ocean or by mountains. And so God put me in the Midwest. <laughs> and that's good. I have enough temptations without that. And so they were debating, my folks-in-law updating, you know, we'd be a long way from our family. It'd be hard for our family to get there. They don't know how easy it would have been. 
for us to visit them. We'd have saved our money and we'd have been there. But my mother-in-law made this statement. You know, we got all eternity to spend with our family. We're here to serve the Lord. That's first. We'll serve the Lord and our family will come. You know what? We're all hanging together. We all hang together. We need to give up everything, don't we? For example, what we have in the church age. We've been justified by faith, declared righteous. We have a oneness in Christ. We're not under the law, we're under grace. We have the Spirit's indwelling. We have help in infirmity in our prayers. We are chosen and elected by God. We have a coming glory. There's no possible separation between us and God, and we have a real confidence that God's word is true. That's why Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, which I've just read, to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. Give me a, ten guys, ten families that are really sold out to Jesus Christ. I'd rather have that than a thousand half-baked Christians. People who have their thoughts all over the place. Jesus said, you know what? Here's the test. If you're really serious about this, give it all away. I don't think that's unreasonable. What did Christ give away? I mean, I mean what, what kind of gift could God give us more than what he gave us? What more could the creator, the God of the universe, what more could he have given to us than his very own son? And we say, oh, uh, I don't know. This is... We're having church today, but, you know, they want us to give all. I've given them a couple hours a week. That's enough. Well, after he said that, you go back to Matthew 19, and this really shocked the disciples. I mean, they're blown away by this conversation. And so we pick it up in this story. And uh, the young man walks away hurt. He walks away disappointed. Now, if that would have been in the 21st century, in the average church, we'd have said, whoa, whoa, whoa don't go so fast. You, we would have chased him around the block. He's outstanding. This guy could be a leader in our church. This guy's got money. This guy's got respect. Let's keep him here. Jesus lets him go. And so uh, he owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples in verse 23, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
Rich men have a hard time. We in America have a hard time because we have a lot to do. In my congregation, they're, they're, we are basically, they would never admit it, but if you compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we're filthy rich. Come up sometime and I'll show you some things that people drive that you wouldn't believe. Cost $10,000 a year just to clean their combine. It's not all small peanuts. We're filthy rich. Look over, just look at the parking lot. Go to some of the countries of the world and the parking lot can fit 300, 400 people. Our whole parking lot can fit in this room. And the reason it's tough is because we, we don't need, we don't need to pray. If you had $10,000 in the bank, would you have to pray for a $100 item or a $500 item? No, you just do it. You don't even think about it. So it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye. Now, this is not some small gate. We don't even know about that. This is a needle's eye. The only way you're going to get a camel through there is put him in sulfuric acid and float him through. It's impossible. Still have a saying in Arab nations today, an elephant to go through a needle's eye. That's impossible. And, and so they said, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said then, who can be saved? Health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, right? Right there. What did Jesus say? With people, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I love that, don't you? Nobody can save himself, whether he's rich or poor. But God, the impossibility with men is possibility with God. Every one of you, and me, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ because it was his grace. He called us to himself. And we came by faith. We reached out our hand and took it by faith. If you're here this morning, this may be the only and last chance you'll ever hear of the gospel. You have no guarantee of tomorrow, do you? You don't have any guarantee of today. I walked out of here one noon, shook hands with a good friend of mine. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I was at KU Med Center. And for all practical purposes, he was dead at that point. Shook hands with him, said a few niceties, kind of laughed. It was over. And my question to you is, if that should happen, where will you be? Are you like the rich young ruler who is trusting his own righteousness and his own way and his own thinking, or are you willing to cast yourself on the Lord and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins. I believe your son died for me on the cross. He did the work I could never do. 
He paid it all. He was righteous, I'm not. I pray God will speak to your own heart this morning and will accomplish what he wants to do in your life.